Good evening and welcome to The Midnight Owl. The Midnight Owl podcast is proudly a part of the Not After 30 podcast network. I'm your host, Tim, and this week we are talking about the mysterious and prophetic being, the Mothman. Chaos theory is a rule involving anything in nature. In essence, it considers all data to be infinite correlation, no matter how random the data may seem. In economics, it refers to market fluctuations. In geography, it is the belief that if a butterfly flaps its wings in one end of the world, it can cause a hurricane in another. In physics, it's a tad more complicated. It states that all subatomic and nucleonic particles are all united under one force. Not gravity, but a very powerful force which holds the very essence of protons, electrons, and neutrons together. It branches out into every facet of our existence. Infinite correlation, no probability. In chaos theory, everything is related. Everything is with purpose and pattern. That's from Urban Dictionary, submission by Dr. Doom. The Mothman legend originates in the small community of Point Pleasant, West Virginia, in the 1960s. November 12, 1966. Five men were digging a grave at a cemetery near Clendon, West Virginia. They see a man-like figure fly low from the trees and then over their heads. They would keep this encounter secret until the news breaks days later. November 15, 1966. Two young couples from Point Pleasant, Roger and Linda Scarberry, and Steve and Mary Millette, were out in the TNT area. The TNT area was a former World War II munitions plant, at this time run down and abandoned. The couples were out for a late-night drive to the secluded area. They saw a man standing in front of the plant doors. To say they were unsettled might be an understatement. I can't imagine the chills I would get driving out of town on a dark night into the woods to an old abandoned plant, where when you roll around to the front of the building, a figure is standing motionless, unsurprised by your presence. They stared at this man trying to make sense of what was happening. Maybe for a moment, maybe a minute, until it unfurled its ten-foot wingspan. Its wings were black and leathery, like a bat, with no distinct feathers. At first it tried to move towards them on its legs, but it wobbled and looked clumsy. The Mothman of Point Pleasant spread its wings and rose into the air. It didn't flap them like a bird generating lift. It just floated up into the air. The couple's panicked minds were gripped in terror by this unearthly sentient. It's worth noting this sense of horror, of unease, and complete fear that came over the Scarberries and Millettes. This is an important aspect of the encounters with the Mothman we will get into later. As they sped away, the Mothman appeared on a nearby hillside. Its eyes glowed red. A primal feeling of being prey crept into their minds. The Mothman began to chase the car. The driver sped up. The driver believed he was going about a hundred miles per hour. 
For our Canadian listeners, and, well, the rest of the world, 100 miles per hour is over 160 kilometers an hour. For those that don't live or travel in rural areas, you have to understand how dangerous that is. It's not the same as empty streets of a city in the early hours of the morning. When you are in a city, the biggest speed bump you might hit is an unfortunate cat or raccoon. In the country, the driver, Roger Scarberry, was risking his life, his wife's, and everyone else in the car, as you never know when a large animal could jump out onto the road. You would be driving faster than you can brake, and a 300-pound mammal can do a hell of a lot of damage, even to a metal beast like their 57 Chevy. However, the Mothman kept pace with the car, circling above or swooping low beside to look in. Some accounts I read stated that the vehicle had scratches from where its wings were beating the top of the car. As they got back to town, they were torn on whether or not they should report these events. They were convinced that they would get laughed at, and wanted to go back once more to make sure the creature was still there, if they were going to report it. As they summed up their courage drove back out of town, on the way to the munitions plant they passed a large dead dog on the side of the road. It was the last straw and all nerve was lost. They turned around and came back. They wanted to check on the dog but as they came up to the location where it should have been, it was gone. They got back to town and reported the incident to Deputy Sheriff Millard Halstead. They explained it followed them down Highway 62 and right to the Point Pleasant city limits. The deputy escorted the couples out to the TNT area. He searched around a bit but saw no sign of anything amiss. The deputy sheriff's radio began to malfunction. It was giving off strange, static disturbances. What a freaky way to phrase that. It's one thing for a radio to go to static... For us old enough to remember televisions being broadcast on antenna, the sound is familiar. But what in the seven layers of hell is static disturbances? This would not be the only sightings of the Mothman that night. Another group of four witnesses claimed to see the bird three different times. It's unclear the origin of the Mothman, but say what you will, it obviously understands showmanship and how to make an entrance. At 10.30pm on the evening of November 14th, a day before the Scarberry Millette sighting, a local building contractor, Noel Partridge, who lived in the nearby town of Salem, no, not that Salem, but that would have been a really cool connection, had an encounter of his own. Noel was watching TV when the screen went dark. A weird pattern filled the screen. A loud, high-pitched sound began to come from his television. This whine raised in pitch and then suddenly stopped. Newell said it sounded like a generator winding up. Newell's German shepherd, Bandit, began to bark and howl. Bandit's hair stood straight up. Newell and Bandit went out on the porch to investigate shining a flashlight in the direction of the barn about 150 yards away. Red eyes shone back. Newell would later remark that they were like reflectors on the back of a bicycle. Bandit was an accomplished hunting dog and territorial, so when he caught the scent, he took off in its direction. 
The red lights glowing back, and Newell terrified him. He called for Bandit to stop, but couldn't bring himself to follow. He went back inside the house and grabbed his shotgun. Partridge couldn't get past that terrified feeling. He couldn't go back outside. He slept with his gun that night. When he woke, Bandit had not returned. Bandit was a constant companion to Newell, so he did what he could to search for his pup. He was able to track Bandit's prints to where he saw the red lights flash back. It was easy with Bandit being a large, heavy dog running through mud, but the prints ended abruptly. There was no sign of him. Two days passed, and when he read the newspaper, there was the account of Roger Scarberry. In his statement, he said at the city limits there was a body of a large dog on their way out of town, and on the way back it was gone. Bandit was never seen again. Newell believes the body of the dog they saw was Bandit. I will say this, Bandit protected his owner and his home. Bandit was a good boy. Is it possible that the Mothman carried Bandit's body 90 miles, or again converting it to a usable measurement, 145 kilometers, to Point Pleasant? November 16, 1966. The Point Pleasant Register published a news article, Couple Sees Man-Sized Bird, Creature, Thing, Something. Over the following year, there was an abundance of sightings. There was as many as a hundred distinct sightings. Those sightings all stemmed from the press conference at the county courthouse the following day, after the encounter at the munitions plant. The couples retold their story, about the encounter the night before. Deputy Halstead, who had known the couples all of their lives, took them very seriously. They've never been in any trouble, he told investigators, and had no reason to doubt their stories. Linda and Roger Scarberry claimed to have had continued sightings of the creature throughout the year, as well as poltergeist activity in their home. Linda felt like she was not in danger from the Mothman, but rather it wanted to communicate with her. The poltergeist activity the couple experienced over the course of that year was mostly noises coming from outside, and even after relocating to the basement of Linda's parents' home, they would continue to hear it. They said it sounded like a sped-up phonograph. Other occurrences was the smell of cigar smoke wafting about, even though no one smoked. There was also the incident of a waking shared dream between her and her aunt, of a man standing in a doorway, studying her. I wonder if someone may have been monitoring the Scarberries after the reports. A shadowy government agency looking to capture the Mothman after it makes a connection with someone? Or perhaps an alien trying to track a lost pet or experiment? Of those 100 or more sightings, there was the account of Miss Marcella Bennett. Near the TNT area, it's very isolated, mostly used as a lover's lane or for hunting and fishing by locals. A few houses are interspersed, but not many. Miss Bennett was on her way to visit her sister, Virginia Thomas, with her brother, Raymond Walmsley, and his wife, Kathy. Marcella's two-year-old daughter was with them, Tina. As she exited her vehicle and removed her baby from the back seat, movement near the vehicle caught her eye. Miss Bennett was quoted as saying, 
it seemed as though it had been lying down. The creature before her was big, gray, and larger than any man she had seen before. The creature's eyes glowed red. In her horror, she dropped Tina. The shock of dropping her child woke Marcella up from the trance. She recovered enough of her senses to pick up her baby and run towards the Thomas house. Maybe it's because she is a parent and has a deep connection with her child. Maybe Marcella is just braver than I am. I know in my heart, like not even deep down, right on the surface level, if I get out of my car and I'm faced with the seven foot tall being with glowing red eyes, that baby is going to have to fend for itself. It's a tough world out there, baby. Better get used to it. The family secured themselves in their home, running from door to window, locking everything they could. The Mothman shuffled up onto the porch, going from window to window, peering in. Again, it's noted the lack of grace the Mothman carries itself with. The police were called, but before they arrived at the secluded home, the Mothman had vanished. Bennett took months to recover from the incident. She sought medical attention to deal with the anxieties from her encounter. This would have been a difficult and brave endeavor for a woman, well, anyone, to undergo in the 60s, as seeking mental health treatment was viewed as more of a weakness. I'd like to say now that there is no weakness in seeking help for mental illness or wellness. There are many services out there to help, as well as loved ones and trusted friends. You are not alone. Miss Bennett believed the Mothman would continue to visit her at her home in the months that followed, as if somehow they were now tethered together. The Mothman had every opportunity in the original encounter to harm her, but it did not. Often she would hear a keening sound, like a woman screaming coming from the area surrounding her home. Was the Mothman mocking her scream from the incident at the Thomas home? Or was it just trying to keep its warning alive in her mind? Interesting that another witness would have what they believed to be continued contact with the Mothman after the initial encounter. It's too bad the keening sound was never recorded, because I'm very interested to know if it's the same sound that the Scarberries continued to hear. I find it interesting that there was continued police support throughout these events. When they arrived, they didn't mock or laugh at the frightened family. They got out of their patrol cars, drew their guns, looked into the surrounding woods, and secured the immediate area. Was this out of respect for their community and the people they swore to protect? In a small town, these officers would more than likely know the family. Is it that if nice normal folk are saying they've seen something, then best give them the benefit of the doubt? In a perfect world, yes and the cops out there seem decent enough for that to be true. It just bothers me that there does not seem to be a lot of pushback on these accounts. Usually in UFO sightings, it's a lone person seeing something extraordinary. Then their character and history is examined, and any flaw exposed. With these reports, it's almost always groups of people witnessing the events. People that have had a good standing in the community, like volunteer firefighters or families. I guess what I'm trying to say is, to have this much buy-in from the town, from its officials and journalists, how real were these events? 
Were the officials privy to a piece of evidence or information we may never know about? Or are they just that polite in West Virginia and couldn't bring themselves to openly call their neighbor crazy? All of the recorded Mothman encounters have similar descriptions. The Mothman was five to seven feet tall, wider than a man, shuffled on human-like legs, clumsy while walking. Its eyes were set near the top of its shoulders, no distinctive head, bat-like wings. The wings didn't really flap. It could ascend straight up like a helicopter. Its skin or fur was gray or murky brown. It never spoke, but emitted a high-frequency screeching sound. The Mothman got its name because of the popularity of the comic book series Batman that was just being turned into a TV series starring Adam West. An unknown copy editor at that time decided to give it a similar name to Batman to help feed off of the buzz. I read one article where one investigator claimed he spent 20 years trying to track down the editor responsible, but was never successful. After the article was published, news started to spread like wildfire. Reporters and amateur investigators descended upon the town of Point Pleasant. Some were in the mood to hunt this cryptid. Others came with a wink and a nod wanting to laugh at the local yokels who were claiming to see this creature from the beyond. At this time, other strange events were happening in the Midwest. I wanted to take a quick side note. Something that I'm learning about on this journey is that there is a distinct form of investigation depending on what phenomenon you're investigating. No one style is accepted, and it's up to the individual investigator or practitioner to learn and use what they can along the journey into this magical world to help them better understand the things that happen on the far side of rational. Which makes sense. Uh, The rational world exists and should be defined by order. Things happen because of cause and effect, which can be studied and explained. In time, as our collective knowledge grows, we can apply these truths to the next problem and draw logical conclusions. With magic, it's less black and white. If magic is an opposite to logic and reason, a yin to its yang, it would be chaotic and open to interpretation. That being said, I do not believe that they have to be at war with one another. I mean, I know the earth is a globe and vaccines help save lives and protect our society. Those are facts and can't really be interpreted. When it comes to our spirituality, there's room to have an emotional response to the unknown. That if you feel energies from something larger than yourself, if you want to seek wonder in the things that are in the shadows, or understand why we are here with the gifts of intelligence and self-determination, then rationalism needs to take a back seat to intuition and feeling. Cryptozoology seems to split the difference between these opposites. Cryptozoology is the study of unknown creatures. It's more grounded in reality than some other investigative techniques, though it's still considered a pseudoscience. Cryptozoologists study first-hand accounts from witnesses, historic texts, fossil records, cave paintings, and other sources to determine if a creature could have or does currently exist. When you think of what kind of creature might fall under this umbrella, think Loch Ness Monster, Chupacabra, Bigfoot, 
before you dismiss this as a silly investigation of people looking for mythic beasts. Keep in mind that the mountain gorilla was only discovered in 1902. That there was decades of first-hand accounts, but it was always treated with smug dismissal. Even the giant squid sailors swore existed was only proven in 2005. With all the technology in the world, hell, even now I'm sitting in the basement recording this podcast in small-town Canada, my voice is reaching out to 10, maybe even 20 people in far-off places of this world. It's important to remember the earth is still vast. Woods and jungles are still dense. The ocean floor still unexplored. The universe is made up of galaxies which contain stars beyond measure. There is still room out there for the unknown, for the mysterious. Is it possible the Mothman of Point Pleasant was a vestige of the old world? A descendant of the North American Aboriginal belief of the Thunderbird? The one, if you would believe the tale, some cowboys gunned down and dragged back to town to nail to a barn to show how massive the raven-like bird was. Maybe it's from further south, and it was more of the reptilian ancestry. It was like Quetzalcoatl of the Mayan belief. Easy, David Ike. I know I said reptilian, but don't steal the Mothman too. Maybe a portal opened between our world and a world from another dimension, close enough to our reality something could pass between that rift. I pose the question of where the Mothman came from because the story becomes stranger when you pull back from the Mothman sightings. I guess it's hard to see the trees beyond the light bulb. I'm going to focus on the reports and works of John Keel. He was a UFOologist, and although other books were written about this time in Point Pleasant, his work became the most famous. He wrote about various unexplained anomalies. Keel's most notable work was The Mothman Prophecies, adapted to the screen in 2001, starring Richard Gere. Decent movie all in all. They deviated from the truth a lot, but for a monster movie, it was a lot of fun. John Keel was in touch with many of the people that had encounters in the 1960s. But being that his focus was always more on the stars, he also compiled a list of complaints that were less sensational than a seven-foot, headless, glowing-eyed man-beast flying around scaring people. There were reports of paranormal activity such as eerie noises, TVs going to static, and people experiencing lost time events. Keel differs from most UFO theorists, where they explain visitation through aliens visiting from far-off planets. He believes these events are really the ancient deities we once worshipped. We only view them as aliens because that's just how our modern mind can interpret what we're seeing. We see a UFO, but in reality, for lack of a better word, we're seeing this ancient god or force coming into view. What is their purpose? Are they so different from humanity that their motivations would be so alien to us that we couldn't understand? The men in black, in his mind, are an extension of that. The elder gods can manifest in many ways. UFOs, aliens, monsters, demons, angels, and even ghosts. By dismissing the extraterrestrial theories of the Mothman, Keel has made himself a controversial 
but well-liked and respected figure in UFO circles. In Keel's mind, man has had a long relationship interacting with the supernatural. Just because we outgrew our reliance on magics and those old guiding forces does not mean they've forgotten about us or stopped their gentle manipulations. Keel believes that human beings that could change the world would often be visited by these strange persons. Thomas Jefferson and Malcolm X are notable examples. They may have had their lives touched by the gods of old. During the year of events in Point Pleasant, Keel would travel down and take reports and investigate incidents. He arrived in December of 1966. Of those accounts, there were new and interesting reports of strange persons showing up in town. There were well-dressed men clothed all in black. They are known as the Men in Black. From my research, the Men in Black are a common theme in American accounts of UFO sightings. The Men in Black show up after someone reports seeing a UFO. Being a kid that grew up in the 90s, I never knew this was an actual conspiracy. I assumed it was just the Will Smith movies and nothing more. And I know I've diverged a lot in this episode, but it is my show and I can, so I will. This speaks to me on a deep, nerdy level. Who else remembers the trend of putting a rapper in a movie than doing a tie-in music video? Like Will Smith's MIB rap at the end of the first movie? Or Wild Wild West? It was extremely distracting thinking about during writing this episode. So much so that that's this week's excuse for why I'm a few days late. But if The Mothman became a movie... What rapper would you want to star or sidekick in? And what would that music video look like? We live in a time where nostalgia is king, so I don't think anything's off the table, except for Vanilla Ice and LL Cool J. They had their chance with Go Ninja and My Hat is Like a Shark's Fin. Never again. For my money, it's gotta be Eminem. It's been years since 8 Mile. And if B-Rabbit had to fight the Mothman, I think I could die a happy man. Keel in many ways became the main chronicler of the Mothman. In his books, he stated that over 100 people saw the Mothman on various occasions between November 1966 and November 1967, but were too uncomfortable reporting their experience. Keel compiled a list of TV malfunctions, phone malfunctions, and UFO sightings, as well as the Mothman encounters. Interestingly, some of the UFO reports predated the Mothman showing up. In the fall of 1966, there were lights in the sky around the TNT plant. Cars that passed on the road nearby would stall out for no reason. James Lilly and his family were so unnerved from the disturbances in their home that they sold their house, packed up, and left. The timing of all this led Keel to the deduction that there was a connection to all of these events. Possibly that a portal of some kind or vortex between our world and a closely linked dimension or a planet would occasionally open up for a time, then close. This helps explain the random reports of monsters appearing in various locations the world over. Mary Heyer was a prominent figure in the documentation of the Point Pleasant Mothman as well. Mary Heyer worked as a correspondent for the Athens, Ohio newspaper, The Messenger. 
She wrote extensively about the Mothman and UFO sightings. It was the main point for the reports. Some in the community trusted a report to her before calling the police, thereby avoiding embarrassment. One night, in January of 1967, Mary was working late in her office at the county courthouse. A man walked in. He was very short and had strange eyes that were covered with thick glasses. He had long black hair that was cut like a bowl cut, but with straight edges. He spoke in a low, halting voice and asked for directions to Welsh, West Virginia. His weird dialect made it seem like he had a speech impediment. His energy was off-putting and for some reason his presence began to terrify Mary. As they spoke, he, quote, kept getting closer and closer to me and his funny eyes were staring at me almost hypnotically. Mary became so uncomfortable she called out for the newspaper's circulation manager to come to her office. As they both spoke to the well-dressed little man, he reached down and grabbed a pen from her desk. Mary would later comment that he was staring at the pen as if he had never seen a pen before. He looked at it in amazement. He then laughed loudly as he grabbed the pen and ran out of the building. Several weeks later, Hire was crossing the street near her office and saw the same man on the street. When she locked eyes with him, the strange man in black looked startled and ran away. A large black car came around the corner quickly. He jumped in and drove away. Time after time in this story, the multiple witness encounters have come to light. I understand a lone person being spooked by a scary story and misinterpreting what they saw like a large bird or a flying man, or even multiple people seeing something at a distance and jumping to conclusions on what they must have seen. But when people are encountering the strange and actually interacting with it, it gives me pause. Is it a strange vortex of supernatural or extraterrestrial happenings where a small town just got stuck in the middle of it? Or is it some kind of mass hysteria manifesting itself through the pranks of a few bored individuals? I mean, it's the 1960s. Without Netflix or the Not After 30 podcast network, with all of our amazing programming like the Not After 30 podcast, the Awkward Throat Clear, and Miss Six Before 30 podcast, what are you supposed to do with your time? The Not After 30 podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts. I guess what I'm trying to say, the MIB and a few of the encounters with the Mothman definitely sound like a prank. I don't know the steel nerve you would have to have to commit to the bit long enough to walk into the county courthouse, speak in a weird voice, steal a pen as a trophy, and the amount of money you would need to bankroll a weeks-long campaign of freaking people out for the laughs. Do you think anyone will ever step forward with this? Or is it best lost to history? A mystery of wonder some random people decided to instill upon this town. Speaking of known hoaxes, there's been dozens of people over the years that have come forward saying that they were the Mothman, that they dressed in a Halloween costume to scare teenagers. But it's unclear who did what because so many people have come forward as the sole perpetrator of the Mothman hoaxes. One confirmed hoax 
was a group of construction workers. They used helium from their welding tanks to inflate a bunch of balloons and attached a couple of flashlights with red bulbs onto them. I don't know where I fall in all of this. Of true belief, I, I have an open mind and respect the fact that these reports come from normal human beings. To disregard or disrespect them is wrong. I would want to be listened to or believed if I saw lights in the sky. If I interacted with something from beyond our rational world. The universe is a big place and I can't imagine it empty. That being said, the thought and execution from the construction workers and their balloons is innocent and amazing. We all need a decent scare every once in a while. There is humility in the act of acknowledging you were afraid. The sense of release from laughing at something you were just terrified at can be cathartic. When we are surrounded by so many things we can't control, taxes, jobs, the daily maintenance of a fulfilling life, these men in a sense are heroic to me. I hope people enjoyed it, if not in the moment they thought the Mothman was cresting the treetops. The split second of wonder they got to enjoy, as they thought it just might be. Now, what I don't respect is the continued antics of the men in black. If they were just pranksters, they got their scare or uncomfortable moment, but they continued. They harassed witnesses with threats and odd behavior. I tried to put myself in their shoes, but for the life of me, I don't understand what happened next. Were they cosplaying something from their UFO books and they got too deep into their roles? Or were they really something else? Reports trickled back to John and Mary, who at this time began to compare notes of the men in black. At the local diner, they had to be shown how to use the utensils. The men in black were going up to individuals who had reported encounters and threatening them to keep quiet. There were dozens of incidents of them showing up at people's doors to say they were from the utilities company, like water or gas, and needed to check their meters. When the homeowner would let them in, the MIB would go to the basement, where they would remain for a long time. So long, in fact, the homeowner would eventually have to go down to check on them and see what the hell they were doing. When they got to the basement to check, the men in black were gone. The men in black were rarely seen on their own. They usually showed up in groups of two or three. Each encounter usually has a different description of what they look like, or what they were asking for. Consistent qualities to an MIB visit is the dark clothing, olive or transparent skin, odd speech patterns, and inconsistent blinking. Mary Hire's niece, Connie Carpenter, had an encounter with the Mothman while driving home from church at 10.30 a.m. of February 1967. As she drove by the local golf course, she locked eyes with the Mothman and got the feeling like she was prey. She was terrified and drove as fast as she could to escape it. The Mothman kept up with her. She managed to make it to her boyfriend's house and hid inside. Connie developed Klieg conjunctivitis the next day, a condition caused by long exposure to ultraviolet radiation, sometimes referred to as eye burn. The eyes became inflamed and swollen. A few days later, Connie was on her way to school when a man in a large black car waved her to his car. 
It was a 46 Buick, but the inside was immaculate, like it was a brand new car. Since she didn't recognize his face and Point Pleasant being relatively small, she thought that this man was lost and she approached to help with directions. The man reached out and grabbed her and began trying to pull Connie into the vehicle. Connie fought back and had her blouse ripped in the struggle. She escaped and was able to make it back to her home. This interplanetary dick wasn't finished with Connie yet and several hours later slipped a note under a door that read, Be careful, girl. I can get to you. Connie has never fully recovered from this event. She refuses to speak in interviews, but did allow her husband to talk for her. At no point in this story has the Mothman attacked anyone. The Mothman simply shows up, looks at you, and communicates fear, unease, that you are prey. Not specifically that you're its prey, just that you're the subject of something's desire to be consumed. If I had to guess, the Mothman is an empath. Empaths have the ability to read and communicate emotion. Kind of like a psychic. Where a psychic communicates thoughts or ideas, an empath would communicate through feeling. Let's look at it from the perspective of the Mothman. How scary would it be for an alien being understanding how exactly it makes people feel to try to reach out and save someone from impending doom to know that all they can do is look back and see a monster? To continue to do that is either a desire to consume that negative energy, I guess kind of like David Icke's reptiles, or a deep and for lack of a better word, human need to protect another sentient life. The men in black are harassing people, obviously able to communicate, but settle for threats and shows of force. This speaks to of trying to control something. Maybe knowledge of other worlds, maybe an outcome they want to come true. Maybe it's something so alien to human thinking we can't comprehend the end goal. But if we accept the Mothman and the Men in Black aren't of this world, or from a corner of this world we can't understand, then it's possible that the Mothman knew Connie was going to be attacked, that it tried in its way to communicate to her to be afraid, so that she would have her guard up when a man dressed in black tried to pull her into his car. The Mothman may have spoke to that human animal deep down inside of her, and got her ready for the fight. Over and over again, the statements from these people that looked into its eyes are that they were afraid, that they felt like prey. But as the emotional impact cools and lessens, they feel like if it wanted to hurt them, it could have, but didn't. The Mothman sighting stopped on December 15th, 1967, at around 5 p.m. The 700-foot bridge that connected Point Pleasant to Ohio, backed up with rush hour traffic, suddenly collapsed. Dozens of vehicles went into the water. The silver bridge collapse claimed the lives of 46 people. This incident left a large and lasting scar on the people of Point Pleasant. The Wikipedia page for Point Pleasant said that the population around 2015 was a little over 4,000 people. Any life lost is a tragedy, 
human life is precious one and all. I'm from a rural community, and I can't imagine how devastating this loss would be. These people would be connected to nearly everyone in the community in one way or another. The cause of the collapse was deemed poor maintenance. Mary Heyer went days without sleep as she tried to handle the influx of reporters and TV crews that invaded the town as the locals tried to grieve and come to terms with what had just happened. During the week before Christmas, a short, dark-skinned man entered Mary's office. He was dressed in a black suit. Mary thought that he looked vaguely oriental with high cheekbones, narrow eyes, and an unidentifiable accent. He was not interested in the bridge disaster. The man in black wanted to talk to Mary about the UFO sightings. Mary was too busy to accommodate him and handed off a folder of press clippings. The man in black was undeterred and remained in her office waiting for her to free time to speak with him. She dismissed him from the office with the help of co-workers. The same night, an identically dressed man visited the homes of witnesses to the UFO sightings. His presence made them feel extremely uneasy. An interesting note here is that he claimed that he was a reporter from Cambridge, Ohio. It's interesting because people being more suspect of strangers now questioned him, and apparently he had no idea where Columbus, Ohio is. The two towns are less than an hour and a half apart, with Columbus being the state capital. Indrid Cold, or the Smiling Man. The Smiling Man showed up on his deserted highway November 2nd, 1966. Woodrow Derenberger, a sewing machine salesman, was on the interstate outside of Parkersburg, West Virginia, about an hour away from Point Pleasant. Woodrow was stopped by a large object on the road, which at first he mistook for a patrol car. But as he got closer, it was a large, unfamiliar object. The object was shaped much like an old-fashioned kerosene lamp, with a central bulge and flared edges. A man exited. According to Derenberger, this man was ordinary in most respects. That is except for the large, broad grin that this man wore. It was disproportional to the rest of his face. It stretched across it. Derenberger noted that this man had a dark overcoat on, and beneath that, he wore a metallic-looking uniform that was green and glistened in the limited light. The smiling man's arms were folded, and both sets of knuckles seemed to nestle within his own armpits. The smiling man identified himself as Indrid Cold. Indrid Cold said that he came from a place less powerful than the United States. He was reassuring and admitted that he was flesh and blood, like Woodrow, and in no way special or spectacular. Indrid encouraged him to report the encounter to the authorities. As he returned to his spaceship, Indrid revealed that this would be the first of several meetings the pair would have. The conversation was delivered by something similar to telepathy. Woodrow sought out John Keel and reported the events in detail. During Keel's investigation, he received mysterious phone calls from someone 
calling himself Injured Cold. Keel believed that whoever phoned him was an informed third party trying to fool him. Despite this, Keel wrote a foreword in Derenberger's book, Visitor from Lenulos. All these coincidences led Keel to formulate a theory about windows or portals opening up between worlds or various closely tied dimensions to our own. He cites the pattern of mysterious occurrences popping up the world over for a limited time and then simmering down and stopping. After the sightings in West Virginia, the Mothman showed up in several locations across the world. On September 10, 1978, a group of miners in Freiburg, Germany, arrived at work to find a creature that fits the Mothman's description blocking the entrance to the mine. At first, the miners believed it was a large man in a leather trench coat. When it unfurled its wings, it appeared to be a headless creature with glowing red eyes on its chest. The men remained in stunned disbelief until it let out a blood-curdling screech. The miners ran for safety, consumed by fear. About an hour later, the men felt a rumble under their feet and witnessed a plume of dust shoot from the mine as it collapsed. If the men had gone to their stations, they would have died. They named this creature Freiburg Schrieker, and they believe it saved their lives. Oh, and uh, dibs on Freiburg Schrieker as a band name. In the weeks leading up to the disaster at Chernobyl Nuclear Power Plant in April of 1986, there were several sightings with descriptions similar to that of the Mothman. They referred to it as the Blackbird of Chernobyl. Chernobyl employees had reported seeing a large, dark, headless man with gigantic wings and fire-red eyes. As people came forward... Some employees reported to having horrifying nightmares. Others received threatening phone calls. On April 26, 1986, the Chernobyl nuclear power plant was rocked by a massive explosion. 30 people died in the initial blast. 10 additional deaths followed due to radiation. As the Soviet helicopters circled the smoldering plant, dropping clay, sand, lead, and other extinguishing chemicals on top of the flames... Some of the surviving workers were sacrificing their own lives to prevent any further destruction. Witness what was described as a 20-foot bird gliding through the irradiated smoke. New York City, 9-11. I cannot find much confirmation of this, but there are reports of the Mothman appearing around the towers in the weeks leading up to the terror attack some saying that they could see it fly beside one of the planes before impact. Fukushima, March 11, 2011 Days before the disaster, a large man-sized being with no head and glowing eyes was spotted around the towers of its plants. Witnesses felt a sense of dread at its visage. Chicago, 2017 In 2017, the Mothman was sighted all across the city of Chicago fitting both the description and the Mothman motifs of showing itself to groups of people. There were even accounts of the Mothman trying to communicate with people and having them at first react with animalistic fear to recover and feel that if it desired to hurt them, it would have, but didn't. Um, 
One report stated that there was over 50 people seeing it at one time. There's been some discussion amongst rationalists what the Mothman can actually be. Owls and cranes are the most likely suspects, having the right build and wingspan to trick an overactive imagination in the dark. How this explains the daytime sightings, I don't know, but it does make sense at least for some of the cases brought forward. As for the glowing eyes, owls and cranes have what is referred to as eye shine. Their eyes are built in such a way that the membrane behind the eye will reflect red when a light is flashed on them. That light could be anything from high beams of a car or even a flashlight. If the Mothman isn't an old god trying to help humanity, if the Mothman is not a creature lost to time, if it's not an alien or being that has crossed over from its home or dimension to ours, maybe it's not even a large owl that was native to the area or crane that has traveled well outside its normal territory. It could be linked to the curse of Chief Cornstalk. Chief Cornstalk was a Shawnee Aboriginal chief that after initially fighting with the settlers had found peace. In 1777, Chief Cornstalk had gotten word that the British were trying to convince the natives in the area to attack the settlers and their forts. He understood the cost of war and wanted to avoid the death of innocent people. He went to the closest fort and told the cavalry what was happening. Because he would not tell his people they could not take part in the battle if they chose to move forward, he was arrested and used as a hostage to stop the attack. It worked. Two of the soldiers from the fort left to go on a hunt. One was killed by native forces. At the same time, Chief Cornstalk's son had come to visit his father to make sure he was well. The surviving soldier made it back to the fort and relayed what had happened. As retribution for the death of one of their own, they killed Chief Cornstalk, his son, and everyone else that was in his party. They were butchered in their cell. The legend says, as the chief died, he placed a curse upon his murderers. I was the borderman's friend. Many times I have saved him and his people from harm. I have never warred with you, but only to protect our wigwams and lands. I refuse to join your pale-faced enemies with the red coats. I came to the fort as your friend, and you murdered me. You have murdered by my side my young son. For this, may the curse of the Great Spirit rest upon this land. May it be blighted by nature. May it even be blighted in its hopes. May the strength of its people be paralyzed by the stain of our blood. In 1794, the town of Point Pleasant was established near the site of the old fort. His remains were placed inside a four-ton obelisk, a monument that was placed in the local park. Ever since, almost any disaster has been blamed on the curse the people took out upon themselves. The Mothman is celebrated today in Point Pleasant, with an annual festival that was established in 2002. There's a pancake eating contest with Mothman-shaped pancakes. Bob Roach, a sculptor, created a 12-foot-tall metal statue that sits prominently in the town. The eyes were meant to glow red at night, but fundraising fell short. It's an amazing statue, 
but I have one question about Mr. Roach's design choice, as its chest is covered in what appears to be curly, thick hair. I respect an artist's discretion, but it makes me wonder if he was heavily influenced by Jeff Goldblum's film, The Fly. During the weekend-long festival, you can visit the Museum and Research Centre, established by Jeff Walmsley. Unfortunately, they don't offer international shipping, but if you are in the States, I definitely recommend checking out their site. It's got some awesome merch. You can take hayrides and visit various vendors and exhibits. I think that that might be the first big goal for this podcast. I need to get down and check out the Mothman Festival. I may not make it this year, but I'm definitely going to get down there and check it out in one of the years to come. I'm I'm dreaming big, but how awesome would it be to have a live show at the Mothman Festival? I mean, if nothing else, I have to throw my hat into the ring when it comes to the pancake eating contest. As a Canadian, with maple syrup running through my veins, I may have an unfair advantage. This week's subject... The Mothman means a lot to me. It speaks to me on so many levels, how it spirals out from this initial creature to shady government agencies um, to aliens seemingly not even connected to the core story somehow being involved of uh, telepathy and uh, the, the empath abilities and stuff like that. It's I wanted to do this story justice, and I hope I did. This has all the earmarks of a great creature feature. Where there is so much information, but not many details, I love it. Why was there so many group sightings? It wasn't a case of the town drunk or loner coming back with tall tales. It was families and upstanding citizens. The Mothman itself is this creature who, by all accounts is ugly and strikes fear into the hearts of anyone that sees it to be regarded as almost a sad hero. We are trained from an early age from movies and stories that the evil creatures are ugly and corrupted. It's the basic building blocks of most fairy tales. I wonder if maybe the Mothman was just present to make sure a few special people survived a disaster as any self-respecting nerd knows that messing with the timeline too much can have disastrous effects. A butterfly flaps its wings in Mexico. A tidal wave hits Australia. Doesn't know we're glad for its intervention? That we're grateful for the Mothman's continued attempts at preventing disaster. How sad would it be for an empath to visit our world and try to help, but could only communicate through emotion? When you're dealing with a human being and you're trying to tell it about a danger, how do you express anything other than fear? Thank you, Mothman. Or moth person, I guess I shouldn't assume anything. For believing in the good of humanity. That we might be worth saving no matter the scale or how impossible that task may be. The Midnight Owl is a part of the Not After 30 podcast network. We offer four main shows and a ton of great content on one feed. The Awkward Throat Clear. <clears throat> the Awkward Throat Clear. The Not After 30 Podcast. And Before 30 Podcast. 
the Not After 30 podcast feed is available on all podcast apps. If you want to reach out and talk about this week's episode, you can reach me on Instagram at the Midnight Owl Podcast, all one word, on my email at beardedandboard at gmail.com, B-E-A-R-D-E-D-A-N-D-B-O-R-E-D at gmail.com. And I will also be an active member of the Not After 30 podcast Facebook group. So feel free to talk to me there as well. I want to leave you with this tidbit. The Will Smith effect is when incidents of UFO sightings are reported in the media or represented in pop culture, more sightings happen. Thank you, listeners. And don't forget to owl at the moon. Hoot hoot.